And other than that, there are no pressing announcements. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. And our focus will be on verse 5 through 8. But I will begin reading in verse 3 so that we have our full context. Again, verses 5 through 8 will be our focus. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And our our passage begins today. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. O Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this privilege we have to sit under the ministry of your word. Oh, Lord, it is your word that is true. It is the word of truth. And, Father, as we come to your word, we look to be renewed and changed and sanctified in the image of our creator, in the image of you, O oh Lord, that we may bear fruit and multiply and, and that we may bring glory to your name. O oh Lord, I ask that you'd give me grace as I preach, Father, to unpack this text that uh, you would give us hearts to understand, um, that my lips may be anointed and my heart may be filled with the Spirit to uh, properly uh, enunciate your word and that our hearts and minds would be clear from any distraction and that we may receive the word implanted in our hearts and that we may grow by it. Lord, we ask this all for your glory and honor in Jesus' name, amen. So, Picking up where we left off last time, we talked about uh, the importance of faith, love, and hope, and how that triad uh, is the essence, describes the essence of the Christian life and the Christian experience. And with that, we understand that uh, that hope is built on our eternal future, that we know we're, we're going to heaven. There is a sense, and, and yes, Christianity is about eternal life. It is about going to heaven. It is about escaping uh, the judgment of God and having eternal life with God. That is, that is the message of Christianity. And that is the message of the gospel. That is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that, is that God, through Christ Jesus, delivered us from sin, delivered us from death, 
delivered us from judgment and reconciled us to himself uh, as we were intended to be a new creation, a new human race, enjoying fellowship with God both here in the world in the present and in the world to come. The question I have for you is, do you really believe this? Do you believe it? Some of us may sit here week after week and hear it and acknowledge it, but are you convinced it's true? Not everybody is. And what I mean is, it's not just are you a believer, quote-unquote a Christian believer, but are you a true believer? When I say true believer, I mean in the broadest sense. You know what I mean when I say a true believer? Well, let me give you an example. There are people who are true believers in what we call global warming or climate change. It's a big movement. And there's variations of it, right? So there are true believers who are absolutely and utterly committed to the cause. They give their lives for the cause. They go out and speak for the cause. Uh, they lobby for the cause. They proclaim that message because they are deeply convinced that a catastrophe will be caused by climate change that will bring utter destruction to the human race. And they believe in the cause to the extent that they want to save the human race. Now, one extreme, you may have someone like a Greta Thunberg, who's a young girl who's gained great popularity for her boldness and courage to speak out on these issues. On the darker end of it, you may have eco-terrorists that will blow up lumber companies in the name of, of saving the planet. Either way, they are true believers. They are convinced that what they believe is true, it's a good cause, and they will fight to the very end to get that message out. We see our country just embroiled in absolute political mayhem in the last 10 years, We've become very divisive and very politicized and uh, very uh, polarized. And what really has pulled us so apart are people are true believers in their political philosophy. Right? Both the left and the right are deeply committed to an absolute uh, uh, um, worldview based on their political underpinnings that there could be no deviation or compromise. And they're true believers. They will fight and argue with you. They will bring their message to you. They will post on social media because they believe in their message. They believe, the left believes they need to rescue the country from the right and the right believes they need to rescue the country from the left. They're true believers. You know what all these people have in common? They want to believe in something. They want to believe in a cause greater than themselves. They want to believe, moreover, that they're involved in something, that their cause is actually for the betterment of humanity, that they want to save man from man. The question is, do you believe like that in the gospel? Are you a true believer of Christianity? Do you believe in the message of the gospel like some of the examples I gave? Are you committed? Are you sold out for this worldview? Are you committed to the message of Christ? 
You see, a lot, there are many messages in the world, and there's always been messengers. And some messages are very powerful, and they create disciples, and they create movements, and they change and shift culture, and they shift society. Because people deeply believe and are committed to those worldviews. The problem is all of these messages and all of these ideas are built upon a sand. They're built upon the sinking sands of this world. They're built on lies or they're built on half-truths. And people build their life on these lies or half-truths, these sinking sands of the world and the teachings and the lies of men, or as Paul said later in Colossians, the empty philosophies of the world... And their lives crumbled down with it. Maybe in a vacuum of, a, of an era, uh, one group may exert more power than another. I mean, clearly, back in the early 20th century, Nazism was a worldview that many people were deeply committed to and believed, and it almost took over the whole world. Apart from the, from the providence of God in, in preventing uh, uh, so many catastrophes from going wrong, we could be all be speaking German today. But we're not, thank God. The gospel, unlike all these other man-made visions and worldviews and messages, is quite different and distinct. It's not about some crusade to save man against man. It's a mission. It's a great commission to have a message that tells man how he could be saved by God from God. The big difference. Do you believe in the gospel? Do you believe in the Christian message, which is, as Paul says to here, the word of truth? He opens up reminding the Colossians that the reason why they have hope and faith and love is because they have heard they have heard the word of truth, the gospel. I want you to think about that. And that's my first point for today, is that the message of the gospel, the message of Christianity is the truth. It's the word of truth. Our message is the word of truth. There's a few different words there. Number one, And it could be interpreted in a variety of different ways. It is the word of truth, the gospel. It is the true word, the gospel. Or it could be the true message. The word can be interpreted message. So it could be the true message, the gospel, or the truthful gospel, which is the message we preach. However you want to put it, the point of the matter is, is that when we use the word word, 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 it is the word logos in Greek. It is the same word that is used in the opening of John's gospel, chapter one, he says, and the word was God and the word was with God and the word of God dwelt amongst us and the word became flesh. That word is that logos is Christ. Christ is the incarnate expression of who God is. But prior to Christ, God spoke. God expressed himself. He expressed himself through natural creation, through all that existed, so that Romans 1 tells us that no human being has excuse because God had all the invisible attributes of God are clearly on display on that which is created. 
But God particularly has expressed himself and has revealed himself to humanity through the written word. That's the Bible. That's scripture. We believe and are convinced as Christians that the Bible is not just a man-made book, but that it was inspired by God. That means it was God-breathed. It means that the prophets of old received messages from God. They were inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit, and they penned down the message that God had. And through those messages, through the word of God, we get to know who God is. We know his mind. We know his will. And we know his heart. How can one know God? Well, I, I, my feelings. I feel him in my heart. Feelings. That's the most subjective thing in the world. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son in whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Jesus Christ is the full expression of God the Father. If you want to know who God is, you need to know who Jesus is. Everything in Jesus' life, his actions, his works, and his words reveal to us who God is. There's nothing, no sin to be found in the life of Christ. There's no blemish to be found because he's spotless, he's innocent, he is the pure son of God, and he reveals who God is. If you want to be like God, then you follow Jesus. Because God is true, his word is true. It is not just merely the word, but it's the word of truth. Now, truth is a term that is, you know, a lot of people don't like that term because the idea of truth means that there's an absolutely true reality that exists outside of ourselves. In the development of 20th century and postmodernity, we've come to the conclusion that truth cannot exist because truth, or what we think truth is, is really a merely a, a social construct that societies have developed in their own context. And so therefore, truth is relative. What's true to you may be true to me. How dare you judge my truth? Truth is, is not what you think. It's not something that exists outside yourself, but it's what you want it to be. Everybody makes their own truth. You know, so we have this kind of idea of the, of the blind men around the elephant, right? And and one's touching the tail, and one's touching the foot, and the tusk, and they're all trying to figure out what it is. It's the elephant, but they're all blind. And we say, well, all the religions in the world are like the blind men around the elephant. That doesn't change the fact that the elephant is still an elephant. I've often heard the equation, too, where, where people have tried to paint all the religions of the world like a multicolored rainbow, Right? And so there's these different colors of the spectrum. They blur one into the other. They're all part of the same bow. But what they fail to notice, they're all refractions of light of the same source. There's one light. And God is light and there's no darkness in him. And so our job is not to define the truth based on our feelings or what we think is right and true, but to determine truth based on what God reveals about himself. And that's to be found only in the scripture. God is, may God be found true. May every man be found a liar. Our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And 
They're absolutely right. If we, we cannot follow our own uh, 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 ambitions or ideas, we're wretched. But God is pure, he's holy, and his word is true. Listen to Psalm 119, 142, thy law is truth. Or Psalm 119, 160, listen to it as the psalmist, the sum of thy word is truth. And every one of thy righteous ordinances abide forever. The sum total of God's word is truth. You want to know what's true? Then study scripture. And if you don't understand it, study more. Pray, ask God to open your eyes. Consult with other learned, mature Christians. What does God think this? The Holy Spirit will direct and guide you. God's word is truth. People may twist the truth, but it's still the truth regardless whether they understand it or not. 2 Samuel 7, 28. And now, O Lord, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. David responds when God makes a covenant with him and his offspring. Thy word is true. God, you can make, you can take God to the bank. You can depend on him. You could rely on him. If God promises something, he says something is so, then you need to believe it. Why do we question the Bible so much? It's our sinful nature. It's our sinful nature. It's the devil. Wasn't it the devil who said to Adam and Eve, did God really say? The first sin, the original sin that destroyed the human race was predicated on casting doubt on the truthfulness of God's word. That is the devil's operation. It's his modus operandi. is to call into question the veracity and the truthfulness of God's word. Did God really say? John 17, 17, Christ himself, as he prays for the church in his high priestly prayer, says, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. If you've ever gotten a letter from Pastor Paul, he puts that stamp on every envelope he sends out. It is God's word that is truth. But it's... We know that God's word is truth. The, and so and Paul's writing from perspective where the Old Testament is, is, is viewed as God's word and it's true and it's trustworthy and it's reliable. But then we get to the point where Paul's saying it's the word of truth, the gospel. See, all of the Old Testament is pointing to the gospel. Jesus Christ is the visible and physical expression of God to humanity and his life and his death and his resurrection are contained in the gospel message. The gospel is what tells us about God. It's what tells us about how lost we are, and it tells us about how God loves us and sent his only son, that through him we can be reconciled, we can be forgiven, we can have fellowship with God once again. That we all, like sheep, have gone astray, but that through the mercy of God, through the cross of Christ, we have access to God. The word in Greek for gospel is euangelon, where we get the word evangelize from or evangelization. And the word means to, to share good news. It means to proclaim. It means to be the bearer of glad tidings in its, in its verb form. And the noun is brought, drawn from the verb form. The evangelist is one who proclaims good news. 
It is the one who, who brings glad tidings, and the gospel is good news. It is good news in a world full of bad news. It is good news in a world full of darkness. It is a beam of light that shines in our life when we're depressed and we're down and we're weighing burdened with guilt and trying hard to do right and failing and, and messing up. It's the good news that says it's okay. God has provided a way for you. It's the good news that says, yes, you may be a failure, you may be a sinner, and you may be on your way to hell, and you deserve judgment, but God so loved the world, he gave his only son that no one should perish, but all who believe in him may have eternal life. It's the truth that relates to the grace of God. If you go down to verse 6, it says that since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel contains the message of God's grace. Salvation is a gift. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. It's a gift that God gives we're to receive by faith. By trusting completely in the finished work of Christ and Christ alone. There's nothing you could do to add to it or take away from it. Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection are sufficient for salvation. This is the good news. It is the good news if you understand its background. It comes from Isaiah 52, 7. It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isn't that what the message of Christ is all about? It, it tells us about how we can have peace with God. It tells us about how to have happiness and joy in life, to have a joy that is not dependent on the circumstances of life around us, but is dependent on our position with God. It is not dependent on the acceptance of love of men, but the acceptance and love of God. And it reminds us that our God reigns. Christ rules and he reigns and that is good news. This is the message that, as it says in Acts, turned the world upside down. It is the message that came to Colossae and when the Colossians heard it, believed it, and it changed their lives. It transformed them. And it's the message that's been preached ever since. You see, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We're not ashamed of the gospel. We preach the gospel. We proclaim it. We declare it. Because it is true. There is no other assessment that tells us about the nature and condition of man and the nature and condition of God and how we can get right with God. No other message tells us the truth. All the other religions in the world are distinct in, or, or in common in this sense. They all tell us about what man could do to get right with God. And the gospel distinctly from all world religions tells us you cannot do nothing. It's what God did for you. Oh, man, that is good news. My brothers and sisters, 
Man is searching for truth out there. In the murkiness of sin in a broken world, truth can become ever elusive. There are many messages out there. People are looking for something to grab onto, something, some cause, something to make them feel good about their existence. But all of these causes will leave them empty in the end. All of these causes ultimately will not lead them to Christ or salvation. There is only one word that matters, and that is the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17 tells us, and hearing by the word of Christ. We need that message. We need it now more than ever. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All right, so we got the message now, the word of truth. Now, what does the Bible tell us about the scope of this message? How far does this message go? What is the scope of this message? To whom does it go? What does Paul say here? He says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. And it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So we have to see here there's a few things going on. This, the scope of this message is the whole world. If you look further down in verse 23, it says, if indeed you continue in faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope that you heard the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, some have taken this to mean that the Great Commission was fulfilled in the first century. These statements, Paul saying that the whole world has heard the gospel, that every creature in the heaven has heard the gospel, as evidence that the Great Commission that Jesus gives in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, has been fulfilled in Paul's lifetime. I think that's hardly something to deduce from that. Uh, the phrase, the whole world, is used often in the Bible uh, and can be used hyperbolically to describe the known world at the time or something that's widespread, something that is universal. So, so for instance, in Genesis, when it says the whole world was under uh, um, um, a drought and there was a, a not a plague, um, a famine, it wasn't the entire planet Earth. It was in the Middle East, in Egypt, and in Canaan, in Palestine, in the area where Joseph and, and, and Jacob and Israel and the family lived, right? It wasn't the entire globe. It wasn't a global uh, um, famine. It was a famine limited to that area. But for Paul's perspective, the gospel has successfully expanded all across the known world. Paul doesn't know about South America or North America, or he doesn't know about the Far East. He, he doesn't know about Russia. He doesn't all Paul knows is the known world at that time, the civilized world is the Roman Empire. And as far as Paul's concerned, the gospel has expanded. And this is before the age of the internet. This is before the age of television. This is before the age of the published print. The gospel had spread through the proclaimed word. It's out there, it's spreading, and people are talking and they're sharing the gospel. Paul's writing this letter likely from prison. He's writing from chains in, in Rome. 
And even in prison, what does he say? Philippians 1, 12 to 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. The whole imperial guard, everyone heard the gospel. And they're going back and telling their families and their friends and the gospel spreading in Rome through Paul's imprisonment. That even in this, God's providence is working it for good to get the message of truth out. The key phrase to understanding the scope and the universality of the spread of the gospel here is in the phrase bearing fruit and increasing. That phrase echoes the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 128, and God created Adam and Eve in his image, he said to them, what was the creation mandate? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And that's precisely what they did. The human race was utterly wicked, and by Genesis 6, and God destroys the, destroys the world in a flood and rescues one family through Noah. And in Genesis chapter 9, verse 2, when, when Noah and his family uh, disembark the ark, I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but it did, and, and when they disembark the ark, and again, what, is, what is God's command? Be fruitful and multiply. God's creation mandate is for the human race to, to procreate, to multiply, to fill the earth. And then sin enters in and just disrupts everything. And so God separates Abraham, and he says, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed, and, and your seed will be like the stars of heaven, like the sands of the sea. And so there's the procreation mandate as circumcision. Uh, uh, it, it is a physical emblem and sign of God's covenant with Abraham that through his seed, there would be a procreation and spread of, of godly seed, of godly people throughout the world. But Israel failed. The prophets looked for a day when God would regather Israel, Jeremiah 23, when, when all of the people of God would be regathering, would be fruitful and multiply. You can't help but to see what Paul is, is thinking here. If you understand Pauline theology, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, that we are a new creation created in Christ Jesus. All of those who have faith in Christ are now part of a new creation. And just as the original creation in Adam had a mandate to procreate and to fill the earth, Likewise, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have faith in Christ and who have been engrafted into the people of God have this mandate to be fruitful and increase. We're not talking about physical procreation here. We're talking about spiritual procreation. We're talking about multiplying the gospel. You see, that's what the spread of the gospel is. It's, it's a, if, if, it, if, if everybody's faithful to the Great Commission, it multiplies. You get saved and you, you're filled with joy of God. And guess what? You share it with someone else. And then they get saved and they share it with someone else. And that's how Christianity has survived for 2,000 years. And it survived through the faithful proclamation of the gospel through his people one generation to the next. And so what Paul is emphasizing here is that the church has a mandate, a 
mandate to be fruitful, to multiply. And it's taking place within the church of Colossae as it is throughout the whole world. You see, in the end of the day, the truthfulness of the gospel is validated by its success. The truthfulness of the gospel is validated by its success. Now, in the first century, when Paul's writing, could hardly be said that Christianity was the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. Far be it from that. It was a small minority religion, a sect of Judaism in the eyes of the Romans, and it was growing sparsely. When Josephus wrote his account on the history of the Jews, he barely gives any attention to the Christians at that point because it's not much to talk about. By the third century, however, Christianity would overcome Rome and become the dominant religion. It would become the dominant religion of Europe for a long period of time. And today, Christianity is still the dominant religion of the world, and it is growing, and it is fruitful, and it is multiplying, particularly in developing nations. In church, countries like India and China, South, and continents like South America and different nations there and in Africa, the gospel's flourishing. It's still a minority religion in some respects, but on the whole, Christianity is thriving and growing. However, here in the West, there's actually a decline. America and Western nations like Great Britain and, and European nations are increasingly becoming more atheistic and secularized. I read an article this week by, in CBS News, and it was a piece that quoted Pew Research Center saying that Christianity is in the decline. And uh, one day, they're predicting by 2060 that the population of Christians in America will dip below 50%, and they base this on trends that they see. So, for instance, and I quote the study, 2020 Christians accounted for 64% of the U.S. population, including children. Meanwhile, those who are not affiliated with a religion have grown from 16% in 2007 to 30% in 2020. All other religions are accounted for but 6%. Depending on the future of religious switching, people who identify as atheists, agnostic, or nothings could become America's largest quote-unquote non-religious group within our lifetime, uh, researcher Stephanie Kramer tweeted. What's happening is people are shifting more and more away from Christianity. Christians who get saved, sadly, their children are departing from the faith in the largest numbers ever. What's the reason for it? Well, we could sit here and debate. When I read this article, one thing came to me. It, <laughs> it's two things that came to me. I said, number one, I would imagine living in around 65 AD when Nero was emperor. The Christians were being exterminated big time. I mean, there were pogroms where Christians were being obliterated. And if I was a Roman sitting around at that time and I was chatting with someone in a cafe in Rome, I said, what do you think the Christians will be in 20, 30 years? Oh, pfft. We won't hear about them ever again. Here we are 2,000 years later. Christians are still around. And the Romans have been extinct for a long time. I don't care what Pew Research says. What does God say? God tells us that until Christ returns, the gospel will continue to be successful. God knows his own. He will save his own. God has 
a determined number of people whom he was going to save, and he is not going to end the church age one day sooner until every last person who is determined by God to be saved and hear the gospel, hears the gospel, and is saved. Period. God is sovereign over the size of his church. I laugh at those polls anyway, because when they say 65% of the population in America is Christian, well, what does that mean? How do you define Christianity? Let's boil that down, because that's a broad term. When we narrow it down to true biblical Christianity, it gets really small in number, and then even within true biblical Christianity, how many of you are true believers? Remember I said about it, what is a true believer? But one thing I could say for sure and for certainty is that I believe in the time we're living in is that as Christian Christians, we've lost our witness. We've lost credibility. I think through our materialism, our own vain hypocrisy, we have sadly lost a generation and maybe more. But that won't undermine the work of God. That's the amazing thing. Several years ago, I met a brother, and, uh, an older man, and his son is in his 30s. He's a very godly man. He's, he he, he has a, bears a lot of fruit, very active in ministry. And I was talking to the father and mother, and I said, boy, I, I said, your son is such a blessing. I'm so glad to see how he's grown and developed. And, and he says, no thanks to me and my wife. I said, why is that? Because we had to be the worst model as Christians ever. We did everything wrong as parents. We never read the Bible. We, never, we argued and fought all the time. There was a lot of hypocrisy in our home. I'm amazed that my son is the way he is. And that's a reminder that even when our witness is bad and even when we fail as parents, God knows whom his people are. And he will save them to the uttermost. You or anyone else cannot undermine the work of God. Finally, the messenger of the gospel. So the messenger of the gospel. The gospel message is the word of truth. The scope of the gospel is universal. And then we see that God uses people to bring it. In the church of Colossae, it was Epaphras. In verse 7, he says, You learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And as made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now I want you to see a couple of things here. Number one, he says, You learned it from Epaphras. Earlier, he talks about hearing the message of the gospel. Learning and hearing are central to the Christian religion. Christianity is a religion of teaching and learning. The disciples were called disciples. What's that word, disciple? It literally means student. We are all disciples. We are students of Christ. We are students in the school of grace. Christ is the headmaster, and he's appointed teachers in his school. We're all teachers, by the way, because we're all teaching someone with our words or with our actions, and both. And, 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 and so, we have to see that within the church, though, God gives gifts to the church. He, he gives men with the ability to, to further that message, to, 
to powerfully and faithfully proclaim that message. Now, Epaphras, as I spoke about him last week, was probably most likely in Ephesus when Paul was ministering there. Ephesus is a big city. Colossae's like a little broken down suburb. But he hears Paul preaching in Ephesus and he goes back to Colossae and he preaches the gospel message there. And guess what? The people get saved and they believe and a church develops and grows. And Epaphras is with Paul in his imprisonment and he's sharing with them about the love and the growth and the faith. And I believe what Paul is doing here is commending, he's commending Epaphras to the church. They may have questioned his integrity or his gifts or his abilities. And he says two things that are really important. First of all, he calls him beloved. He calls him beloved. This is a man who is not only beloved by God, but beloved by Paul, beloved by the church. He is a man who not only has been loved by God, but shares God's love. He is a fellow servant. Paul calls him a fellow servant. He's not an underling of Paul. He's not above Paul. He's a fellow servant. And the word servant there is doulos. It means slave. And what it means, and, and, and I, want to, I want you to think about this, because the way he's describing Epaphras is really the description of every minister of the gospel. Someone who is a pastor, someone who is a minister, is not to be a celebrity, is not to be a big shot, is not supposed to be running Instagram accounts with thousands of followers and see how popular it can be. A pastor is a servant of Christ Jesus. And a servant is enlisted for the pleasure of his master, not for his own glory and satisfaction. You know what a servant understands? It's that his existence is for his master. He lives for his master. But our master is not a cruel master. He's a loving master. He's freed us from sin and death. And we serve him joyfully, willfully, voluntarily. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Paul says, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. This is the mind of a servant. Then Paul says he is a faithful minister. He says about Epaphras, he's a faithful minister. You see, not only does he serve God, but he serves the people. The word minister there is diakonos, where we get the word deacon from. And that means a servant. It means the one who serves tables, a waiter, literally. But the word evolves in the New Testament and could describe not only the office of a deacon, but is used in this particular case and translated minister as someone who's been set aside for the ministry of the gospel. But at the core, a minister is someone who serves the people of God. And how does he do that? By faithfully teaching the people of God. I visited a lot of churches in my life. I got saved in 95, and my journey through Christianity has been, been adventurous, to say the least. And in my early years, particularly, I visited so many different kinds of churches. In my travels, I've visited many churches and there are some churches where you go and you're like, oh my goodness, I heard the word of God today. And you leave and you're thankful. 
It may not be a big, exciting church, but you know you heard the word of God. There's something inside you that says, I'm satisfied. And there's other churches you go to, like, what am I doing here? How is this guy even collecting a salary? How does this guy even have the title pastor? This is a joke. There's a difference between being faithful and being faithless. See, the pastor is first and foremost the shepherd of God's people. What did Jesus say to Peter? He says, you love me, Peter, feed my sheep. You love me, Peter, love my sheep. You love me, Peter, feed my sheep. You're not getting fed at a church and you are not under the ministry of a faithful pastor. I was disappointed recently to hear someone who left our church not too long ago and they said, I'm going to another church, but I'm not fed and I'm not satisfied. And why are you going there? Why would you waste your time? time? Life is short. I don't have, I'm too busy. I don't have time to waste. Never mind to go sit and listen to someone who's talking psychobabble. I need meat. The word of God we live on. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You're not being fed. You're listening online today and you're saying, oh, this is a great sermon. You're in a church and not being fed. Get out. Find a church where you will be fed and go often. Let me conclude. The gospel message is a message that is true through the ages. The gospel has not changed. It's powerful. It's transforming lives now. It transformed lives in Colossae. It transforms lives all across the world. And it does that by incorporating us into the body of Christ. Our existence is in Christ. That's the theme of Colossians, right? The whole theme is is seeing who we are in Christ, the hope of glory. It's understanding what that Christian life is all about. And that Christian life, just as Christ lived to express who God is, we live to express who God is. And we're fruitful and we multiply. And that's the power of the gospel. And Jesus says, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. Are you a true believer? Are you committed? Do you believe this message? Would you die for it? That's how you know if you're a true believer. Would you die for it? If all of a sudden a law was passed tomorrow and said Christianity is illegal in this country, you cannot practice Christianity the way you thought, would you say, okay, I'll, I'll submit to the government, whatever you say, or would you stand tall and say, I serve Christ my Lord? Are you a true believer? I got to tell you, there are other true believers out there who will truly believe in lies and half-truths who are more committed, who are more influential, and who are making more waves in the world than we are. 
If you do not believe, if you're not a true believer, ask yourself why. Get on your knees, pray before God. I know there's a lot in this world that could shake your faith. There's things that shake my faith. But you know what? Where else are we gonna turn? You look to Christ. You hold on with dear life. And as the scripture says, you grab on. You hold on to eternal life, as Paul said to Timothy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this time today. Thank you for your word. Lord, this message, this gospel is good news. Oh, Lord, we need it now. We need to hear it every day. We need to hear it, Father, all the time, Father. We need to proclaim it all the time. Forgive us. Forgive me. There are times when our faith wavers. Forgive us, Lord, when we're not truly believing in this message, this great message. Thank you, Lord, that this message does not depend on our weakness or strength, but depends on your power, and it will do its work. Father, I pray that every one of us here today would be inspired, that we would be more bold, more courageous for the gospel, and that we would never be ashamed of this gospel. For your glory we pray, amen.